Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A new rule is expected any day now to overhaul how the Defense Department buys from the Ability One program. That's the vehicle for nonprofit employers of people with disabilities to deliver goods and services to the government. Contractors under Ability One worry the new rule will hinder a chief program goal of helping those very employees. For details, we turn to the president and CEO of Melwood, Larissa Kautz. Ms. Kautz, good to have you with us. Good to be with you, Tom. Thank you. Briefly, give us where Melwood fits within the apparatus that is the Ability One program serving federal agencies in the Defense Department. Sure, Tom. Uh, we are one of the top of the 400 agencies around the country that serve as Ability One contractors. We're a nonprofit. Uh, we're a leading employer advocate and preferred provider for people with disabilities. We have about 60 different federal contract sites around the D.C. region. And what types of goods and services do you generally operate with? So we do custodial, uh, we do landscaping, we actually grow all of the flowers for the Kennedy Center in our greenhouses, and we do all the landscaping there. We have a top secret facility clearance because we make sure that the Attorney General General's office is clean and the State Department, Fort Meade, we do building maintenance. I like to say that we help run the government. All right. Well, next time I'm at the opera, I'm going to take a close-up look at the flowers at the Kennedy Center, and I'll say, I know where those came from. There's a new rule that is about to come out any day now from the Defense Department, I guess it is, from the, the controlling authorities for Ability One, and you're concerned that this could make it tougher for companies, nonprofits like yours, and disrupt longstanding practice. What, in general, do you expect the rule to look like? Uh, so, Tom, you know, the DOD did a review of the Ability One program a few years ago. It was very in-depth, and it had proposals to modernize the program, one of which is to add uh, a level of competition to the program to ensure that the contractors are performing with excellence and that there's a chance to uh, do a price competition potentially every five years for the contracts. Now, this has been reviewed by the Ability One Commission and the proposed rule, which is now in its final stages and expected to come out soon, proposes to compete contracts, uh, at least the proposed rule, proposes to compete contracts that are above $2 million a year, which will involve a very, very large number of contracts in the program, and basically focuses on price um, as the main differentiator between nonprofits competing for that. It does not look at the biggest bottom line value proposition of the program, which is job creation. And it, it, there's this trade-off in the program between price and employment. If we lower our price to the lowest possible amount, we will be hiring the people who are least significantly disabled, who are more productive. We'll be cutting costs with respect to coaching and job coaching and counseling and accommodations. You know, if we really go to the, the bottom line of lowering price at any cost, it's not going to help achieve the mission of the program. The The program's bottom line value is there is a return on investment to the government of this program beyond just the prices that the agencies are spending for the services. Um, we did a, a study with Virginia Tech last year that showed that the program reduces government spending by about $38,000 per person who's been employed sure. and served by Melwood. But this rule doesn't take into impact and calculations that value proposition 
and what impact it will be to have a lowest price, technically acceptable kind of a shootout <laughs> between sure. the nonprofits and how that'll impact the general return on investment. Right. And that $2 million that you mentioned, contract threshold, that is a significant reduction from the requirement for periodic competition now, which is $10 million? So the, the 898 panel, which was the DOD panel that proposed competition, um, they were the ones that set the proposed $10 million floor because, you know, they know that competition is a disruptor, right? Uh, this program was created to have long-term stable jobs for people with disabilities. And as long as the nonprofit is performing the work satisfactorily, we keep the contracts. We don't recompete them every five years. And so they knew that this would we would have to hire business development people and pricing experts and really fight for the contracts, which in my opinion is a waste of charitable dollars since we're all nonprofits. And we take the margin on these contracts and we reinvest it in the community. And so they set a $10 million floor. And they also said that social impact would be considered in the value proposition of the competition. Now, that has been completely left out of this proposed rule. Nearly 100 organizations, both the contractors and disability organizations and others, provided comments to the proposed rule with respect to both that threshold and the social impact not being part of it. Sure. And I'm just hoping that in the final rule that we see some move from the proposed rule back to the way that the DOD originally had proposed it. We're speaking with Larissa Kautz. She's the president and CEO of Melwood. And traditionally, people working in the Ability One contractors, because they're disabled, sometimes severely so, have received much lower wages than are prevailing for people that are fully abled under you know federal labor law. And there's been a move in the recent years to raise the level of pay that those people receive because reasoning is, well, they're working and they're providing value, so why shouldn't they get the same minimum wage as everyone else? Those two ideas seem to be in collision then, price competition plus you know, dramatic wage raises for people with disabilities working for the contractors. Absolutely, Tom. And I, I love that you bring this up because it's exactly what the problem is with this proposed regulation. It's only looking at the price to the customer and it's trying to drive down the price to the federal agencies. Meanwhile, in the background, there are policy shifts. There are other regulations being proposed to the program to modernize it, to make sure that everybody's being paid a competitive wage to make sure that we shore up as nonprofits the, the vocational support and counseling that we do. A lot of those things are now becoming a priority and a requirement of the program. But at the same time, this regulation doesn't take any of that into account. If there was a balance in the regulation where social impact and price and technical proposal and past performance, if all of those were weighted equally, um, then the government would truly get the best value and the best benefit from each of those contracts. But really, truly just focusing on price, I think it doesn't acknowledge the real mission of this program, which is good jobs for people that are the most significantly disabled. And in a practical sense, these are not big ticket items in defense terms. I mean, it's not like you're supplying them the next generation of bomber, which has, you know, a trillion dollar life cycle cost. It's services, like you say, landscaping, cafeterias, flowers, pens and pencils, that kind of thing. It's significantly less than 1% of the DOD's budget. I mean, we're talking about half of a percent of the DOD's budget. And there's been so much time and effort and energy involved to really think through how to put competition into this program when I just, you know, we just did a renegotiation for our Fort Meade contract. We saved the government $24 million over a five-year period by sitting across the table, opening up all of our books, 
really talking to them about the services that they need on the ground. And we even, you know, we got a write-up um, in an article that said that they were they were extremely satisfied and surprised by sort of that open kimono type of negotiation. That's what's possible in this program. And that's how this program was designed to run. I think by moving backwards to less transparency, to more competition with people bidding bare minimum amounts for the scope of the contract as it's drafted, which then leads to misperceptions, mods, you know, actually more money in the long run that's wasted in administration and right-sizing the contract kind of after the fact. I just wish that that had been investigated and quantified and thought about, but there really isn't much in this rule that shows a cost-benefit calculation in those terms. All right, we'll have to see what the final rule says. In the meantime, we've been speaking with Larissa Couch. She is the president and CEO of Melwood. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.